The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with new sponsor, Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. David Morgan of The Morgan Report joins me for a conversation about commodities. I'm pleased to announce the return of sponsor company Noblest Health Corporation. Noblest trades on the Amex under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Noblest owns and manages ambulatory and acute care facilities to deliver health care services throughout the Southwest. SHGT is founded by Steve Chen, Asia's number one motivational speaker, generating over $60 million in gross revenues alone yearly. In addition to that, SHGT has a health drink called 888, which by the end of the year is purported to be in 50,000 convenience stores and supermarkets across China. With further interest in filmmaking, advertising, and social media, SHGT is potentially positioning itself to be the number one U.S. publicly traded concern out of Taiwan and China. Let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brand Thompson. President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brand, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much, Ellis. If you don't mind, please give us an overview of Oncolytics Biotech. Well, we're a company that focuses completely and solely on treating cancers. So we're an oncology company in industrial vernacular. We're using a very interesting new method of treating cancers, which is to use a live agent, in this case a virus, to infect and kill tumors in humans. And we've treated a little over 1,100 patients to date, so that the program's getting quite mature. And part of that whole process has been to figure out which cancers are susceptible to this particular virus, administer the product most effectively, and how to integrate in what we've learned about how the agent works along the way. So that at the end of the day, you come up with a treatment that's based, like I said, on this live virus that will be focused on the cancers that it works best in. And I think we're actually getting a pretty good picture of all those factors, and I think we're getting targeted very closely on the cancers we think we can make a difference in. You mentioned you've treated 1,100 people to date. Does that mean successfully treated? Every single clinical study we've run, and we've run now uh, over 30 clinical studies of varying sizes, anywhere from 15 to 170 patients, there's always a sub 
patient population in that in those clinical studies that appears to be deriving benefit. And that benefit can be based on tumor responses, so like the tumor shrinking or the tumors going away, or at the other extreme, patients that just seem to live for much, much longer than they're supposed to. And it's always been a proportion. It's never all, it's never zero, or there's always some patient. And so part of our challenge going along has been trying to figure out why some patients respond and some patients don't. Fortunately for us, we're in a large community of people on the research side, and there's been some very significant advances by other parties that have really pointed us toward, I think, a better understanding of why that's the case. And what we've settled on is two things. One is that the genetics of the patient matter a lot. I mean, everybody is individual. I mean, when you come out of the laboratory, you're using animal models with animals that are basically clones of each other. They're genetically identical. You know, when you're doing animal work, things either work really well or they don't work at all. When you get into the human condition, there's a great deal of variation, and patients are different from each other. Their genders are different, and people shouldn't underestimate how different being male or female is with response to any class, but certainly in oncology. Adults and children are quite different. There's racial differences. I mean, there's some very well-documented cases where um, you know certain Asian subpopulations, for example, respond much better to cancer therapies than Caucasian. And there's age differences, and sometimes older people respond better, and sometimes they don't respond better, and that's mostly because they're immune systems. I mean, your immune system unfortunately starts dying off in your 20s and when you get older, that's why you get cancer because your immune system has dropped off. So all those things change and factor in, but the genetics are critical. So we've actually got a very good handle on which patients should respond because of their genetics and which ones shouldn't, and we can test them now. And so we're doing that in all our studies going forward. We're actually pre-screening all the patients and that'll allow us to tell a patient, you know, you should maybe consider another therapy because genetically, you're unlikely to respond to our product. And that's absolutely critical for a patient, especially the first time around. When you're a cancer patient, the first time you're treated is the best chance you have. And if you can say to somebody, no, you should be taking this drug instead of this drug based on their genetics, a huge advance. I wish we had invented it all, but we hadn't. We're just taking advantage of other people's good work. So the genetics matter. The other thing that we've discovered that matters is the status of your immune system. And this is a very topical thing in oncology today. People are, are playing with people's immune systems effectively for the first time. And some of the biggest advances in cancer therapy in the last four or five years have all been on that basis. Lots of products called checkpoint inhibitors, that's what they're doing. They're actually tweaking with your immune system and allowing your immune system to actually see cancer so that the immune system can attack the cancer. And what we found is that our agent actually interacts very potently with the immune system and enhances it in some ways and also causes the immune system to be blind to tumors in some ways. That knowledge is is going to allow us to, again, be able to predict which patients are going to respond and which ones aren't and being able to effectively do it. And we're about to actually start our first checkpoint inhibitor real life and combination clinical trials in the United States, which is quite exciting for us in children looking at and enhancing their immune system and looking at children with brain cancers in the States by enhancing their immune system in combination with real life in our product. We've really, I think, evolved to the point where if, if you told me today, hey, there's a patient of this age, this gender, this racial background, this their genetics, and this type of cancer, I could pretty much tell you whether real license would be useful or real license wouldn't be useful in treating those patients, something I never thought I'd be able to say. It's absolutely remarkable to me that we've advanced to the point where I could, with pretty good probabilities predict what the outcome of using our product on a patient is just by knowing a few things. It's really a big change in the way we've looked at things. Indeed, this is something I've never heard you say before. Are you sharing this data with cancer centers around North America? Uh, yes, we are. And people who are up to speed on all the kind of general advances 
advancements in the area, especially the genetics and the immune therapies, are really very quick to catch on to what we're saying. I mean, the medical community also has to get to speed on all these new developments. And to be fair to frontline oncologists, they spend their days desperately trying to save people's lives, absolutely focused on that. And so it's tough for them to also be up to speed on all the new developments that are going on in the universe. We are trying to make sure that we educate people that don't have that background, and it seems to be working. People are, are really catching on to it. I mean, for example, for the first time, we've actually started treating non-solid tumors, so like lymphomas, leukemias, and like multiple myeloma. And that's an area we've just have not worked on before. But we recently just put out some data. It was presented at a meeting in Rome a couple of weeks ago. And Realison does some very remarkable things. I mean, it's a small patient set. But in both of those elements, looking at the genetics and looking at the immune system, it's absolutely remarkable how much better Realison in combination with the existing drugs are than the drugs are by themselves. I mean, we need more patients to convince people. But boy, has, has that kind of signal caught the attention of people in that community. It's a relatively easy conversation to have with people when you actually have data to back it up. We're beginning to have that kind of data in different cancers. You've mentioned Reolysin in this interview, and perhaps we shouldn't take it for granted that our audience automatically knows or understands what this is. You've developed, in essence, a proprietary virus, so to speak, that actually attacks the cancer tumor without adversely affecting the surrounding tissue. This is what makes the company Oncolytics Biotech so unique in the space. Our product is, and then I try to be very candid with people, is based on a live agent, in this case, a virus. Of course, in the early days when we were treating people, people were quite cautious about that. But when you have a safety database, if you think of that, of over a thousand patients, people start to get comfortable that you've explored to the greatest extent possible the safety implications of using a live agent. I mean, you're taking a patient dying of cancer, infecting them with a disease in effect. And we're not the only ones to be doing this. There's a half a dozen companies looking at different viruses. We're all obsessed with safety, I mean, and for very good reasons. But this particular virus is called the Rio virus. And so the Rio is where the part of the real lysin comes from. And lysin comes from lysis, which which is you know, a scientific term for destroying a cell, so a cell bursting. So real lysin is the real virus causing a cell to burst by lysin, and that's its trade name. Yeah, very in- interesting virus, and it's, it's probably the most common or one of the most common environmental viruses there is. When you test children, by age five, half of children show evidence of being exposed to the virus just from nature, and by 18, virtually everybody has. I mean, if you just randomly test 100 people that are adults, you'll generally get 100 hits that say they've seen real virus before. But it's one of these diseases viruses, it doesn't actually cause a disease in nature. One of the evolving things in virology today is people beginning to understand that most viruses actually don't cause disease. They might infect you, but they actually don't cause a pathology. And of course, two researchers that in the medical system, I mean, when I was still doing basic research in, in microbiology, I mean, I would have never even thought of trying to get a grant to study a disease that didn't exist. This doesn't work that way. So we've got this really innocuous virus that we knew was safe intuitively going in. We proved it up in in animal toxicology studies, and then we've now proven it up in over a thousand patients of safety. It's really quite a a different approach. What's interesting is if you look back in the literature, people started reporting in the 1800s cases where a patient dying of cancer would come down with a mysterious flu-like illness and miraculously hop out of bed and be cured. And it's sort of every you know, three to 10 years, you'd get a report of that. So people in the 1960s actually started looking at a couple of viruses, uh, not Rio, sort of methodically on the assumption that it would be a virus that causes that. And then that blossomed into the 1990s and early 2000s, where all of a sudden you have a, you know, the industry getting behind it, 
depending on the time of day and month, uh, five to ten companies working on different viruses looking at it. And I think the interesting thing with this area is that every virus that people have looked at clinically, taking a virus of different types, a herpes virus, rheovirus, pox virus, adenovirus, every one of those viruses is actually shown clinical activity. And so the concept of using a virus doesn't seem to be virus specific. It seems to be just using these viruses to infect and kill tumors. Now, it's quite remarkable, honestly, when you think about it. Mother Nature has more or less just designed a potential therapy for a disease that we all dread, uh, and it's just been out there, and it's just taken us time to take a look at it and, and kind of reduce it to practice, and I think we're all quite excited about it. I mean, the very first one, not ours, but the very first virus to treat a cancer has been approved for uh, product approval in the United States for the treatment of melanoma uh, by a company called Amgen, which is just down the street from you, and so we're all kind of hoping and praying that the product gets approved because that'll be a signal that, you know, this product area is, is interesting. Just the advances in cancer today between, you know, the things that we're doing and these checkpoint inhibitors, as an example, was completely unpredicted. I, I don't think anybody would have ever expected that in our lifetimes, our working lifetimes anyway, we'd be seeing this big leap forward. It's very exciting to us as an industry and to us who have been affected by cancer personally, like I have, on a personal basis as well. Of course, one of the reasons we're seeing more cancer these days is people are living longer. There are folks listening to this program, I'd wager, quite a few, who have, like yourself, either had a personal experience with cancer or a loved one or a friend has had it or is having it currently. And they're hearing about Oncolytics Biotech and Real Lysin for the very first time. What would you say to these people who perhaps are about ready to undergo chemo or radiation therapy or have already begun? They might be thinking that they can substitute Real Lysin in place of their current treatments. Can they add it in addition to it? Or they might be wondering if there's a clinical trial that they can participate in. For all cancer therapies in the United States that are undergoing clinical trials, there's a really good registry of all clinical trials called clintrials.gov, so C-L-I-N. T-R-I-A-L-S dot gov uh, with a www in front of it, of course, that has a listing of every clinical trial that's going on in the United States that's actively enrolling. And so people can go to that site and they can say ovarian cancer or they can say lung cancer in the search box. And this big, long list of clinical studies that's enrolling in that cancer will come up. And it'll have where the sites are, it'll have the contacts, and it's a very effective tool for patients to directly be able to say, I'd like to be involved in a clinical trial, and oh, here's the contacts. And so they can then talk to their doctor, and their doctor could say, well, yeah, it's just down the street from us, or, you know, it's just in the state next to us, so that's doable. And they can make contacts that way. And so that's how somebody, if they want to get treated with anything, including real license that's in an active clinical trial, can participate in that. And it's a very effective tool for people to search out for themselves, you know, what's available and what's going on. If you type in real license as a search term at clintrials.gov, you'll come up with eight or ten or whatever it is, active clinical studies that we have going on in the United States. And people can see if they can, you know, match up their cancer with us and see if there's a site near them. It's a, it's a wonderful tool. Doctors use it all the time to search out clinical trials for their patients, but patients can access it directly, which I find quite gratifying. Let's talk about investment opportunities. I know you have an investment background and you put this company together specifically as a cancer solution. Keeping in mind that your opinion may be biased, why is biotech getting the amount of positive market reaction right now that it is, and why do you believe Oncolytics Biotech might be a potential investment opportunity? 
Well, I think there's two reasons. The first thing is, is that the diseases that biotechnology companies are investigating generally are very personal and very real to people. So you have companies investigating diabetes and you have people investigating multiple sclerosis and cancer and heart disease. Everybody knows somebody or personally has been affected by one or more of those diseases on the big disease areas. And so when you're looking at it, you know, as an industry, you have just this interest in it from a personal level. And when you look at the investors in different companies, you often see a linkage to that. So like Oncolytics, for example, a big percentage of our investors have a personal link to cancer. A friend of mine runs a diabetes company and he claims that over 70% of his shareholders actually have a personal linkage to diabetes. There's that very personal thing. Second thing is is a more investment-based criteria. If you have a company that's trading at X dollars and they get positive phase three data or a product approval, you can expect them to get a return of often many multiples of that price. It's not just a few percentage points. And so from a risk-reward perspective, of course, the risk is, doesn't work and your investment goes to year zero, but the reward is, is that you don't get a 10% return. You might get a 1,000% return or a 2,000% return as an investor in, in them. So the combination of those two things makes people pay attention to this industry. My very first job was in the oil industry. I mean, I'm from Alberta, and, and uh, it's hard to find somebody here who hasn't worked in the oil industry sometime in their life. Honestly, nobody gets emotionally involved with digging fossil carbon out of the ground. I mean, it's a very important industry generating energy, but it's not the sort of thing that people get emotionally involved with. They get emotionally involved with biotech. So let's cover the upside potential specifically with Oncolytics Biotech. Well, the upside with looking at a company at oncolytics stage development, and not just oncolytics, uh, in the cancer area is, is that we're in the next 12 months going to be coming out with clinical data, in our case, on five or six different randomized phase two studies in different cancers and a half a dozen single arm, what we call single arm clinical studies that don't have a control arm, looking at different cancers as well. And so what you have is all these value inflection points based on you demonstrating that your agent is working in the disease we're trying to treat, which in this case is cancer. And in the hockey vernacular, it's multiple shots. It's a very rare occasion when you have a company that's going to have that much news over that short a period of time that'll either say, gee, I think their product's working, or gee, I don't think there's products working. And so when you look at a company with a valuation like ours, and there's many in the exact same states as we are, you know, if it works, you're looking at a multiple times uptick in the value of the, of the company. And if it doesn't work, the downside is limited because the market cap of the company is quite small to start out with. We don't trade that much above cash value at the moment. So from a risk-reward ratio as an investor, Oncolytics is at the right spot in time for people to be taking a look at as, as an investment, I think. You know, and they, of course, have to do their own evaluations and all the rest of that. But it's, it's sort of the sweet spot of timing with respect to why somebody should be thinking about investing in a company like Oncolytics, and specifically Oncolytics. Well, Brad, as always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thank you very much, Elf. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading in the U.S. under the symbol ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Mart Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. 
That's what I call it. That's EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for an interview with Ken Eford of Noblest Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange's HLTH and on the Toronto Stock Exchange's NHC. Noblest owns and manages ambulatory and acute health care facilities to deliver health care services. Their focus is improving access to care and patient outcomes by providing minimally invasive procedures that can be performed in low-cost outpatient settings. They utilize innovative direct-to-patient marketing and proprietary technologies to drive patient engagement and education. Noblis owns and manages seven surgical facilities in Dallas, Houston, and Scottsdale, and has contractual partnerships with six other facilities in Arizona, Oregon, Michigan, Minnesota, Tennessee, and New Jersey. Ken Eford oversees business development for Nobilis. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. How would you describe your position at Nobilis? Really, just overseeing business development. My duties range from everything from my legacy of operations. I was previously the COO to currently helping with M&A and looking at launching new verticals like in the ancillary space. Now, how has business development with regard to Nobilis increased revenue during the past 12 months for the company? In multiple ways. We've seen our growth within the company be one of organic and through acquisition and through de novo. Organically, we've grown as we've brought new facilities online, as well as reinvigorate past relationship with physicians, as well as through acquisitions like we received in Q4 of 2014 with APHIS and, and enhancing a, a very robust marketing program, as well as de novo with the launch of our interoperative monitoring and first assist programs, all of which have made a, a significant impact to revenue as well as earnings. Of course, this is very unique. But what else is unique about Noblis as compared to other healthcare-related companies of this kind in the space? So those would be somewhat comps in our space or our facility owners and operators, and and that we are to our core, and that's what we started out as. And we are very good operators, but where we're different from our competitors, one is easy to identify is our marketing abilities. We have a class marketing division that has allowed us to go out and directly source patients and surgeries for our facilities and our network of physicians. That's a key differentiator. Also, our ability to have innovative products within the market, whether they be a surgical technique, a physician service, or a complement of services like we've done with the ancillary services. The beauty of bringing those verticals online is it allows us to enhance the patient and provider experience while increasing our continuity of care. So we make sure that the surgeon has the anesthesia provider that they know and love, the IOM tech that they're comfortable with, the first assist that knows their movements and their their behaviors. So we have increased clinical outcomes as well as clinical operations or efficiencies. We have shorter cut-to-close times because of these enhancements. Typically, surgeons aren't schooled in marketing. This is something that they are not taught. So really, when they align themselves with Noblis, they can, in many instances, dramatically increase their own revenue stream. Yes, sir, that's absolutely correct, and that's to our benefit. Direct-to-consumer marketing in the medical space historically, or years ago, was considered taboo. It was predominantly around the dental and plastic spaces, but as we have found that patients are playing a more active role in their medical decision-making, they are out there seeking information, and with the Internet, they have plenty of it to digest. But what that provides us is real opportunity to interject our messaging and direct them into our system. Now when we have surgeons who try to do marketing, they try to do online and have their website, 
often they fail because they lack the proper infrastructure to properly execute on any of those media dollars spent. So we have a desire by our physician partners or, or those within our facilities, but yet they have an inability to execute properly. So that when we bring to them our marketing products, it's with open arms that's received. I know you're quite successful with your marketing strategies in attracting these types of professionals. Are professionals also reaching out to you due to your across-the-board marketing efforts, both with surgical staffing and patients? Yes, sir, that's correct. That was one of the positive side effects, if you will, of us running Direct Response TV and online is we were getting out there in front of the surgeons in our market, and the associated clout that came with it was not only surprising but impressive. And to where now we're no longer having to knock on doors. We still do have identify key surgeons and seek them out, but we're also having surgeons contact us wanting to be a part of our marketing system. So it would be safe to say that in the regions that you serve, you're setting a standard for consumer or patient care, if you will. Absolutely, yes, sir. Give us an overview of your management team, if you don't mind. Our management team comes from several different breeds and ideologies, if you will, and pedigrees. We have a great depth of knowledge from the legal front, the accounting and finance, the marketing, and clinical operation. And what that has allowed us to do is have such great depth on our bench that we can execute and grow as we've experienced over the years and continue to grow. And as we continue to enhance our operations and grow within different verticals, we'll allow our management team to continue to be more specialized as we bring on additional talent. Ken, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. Thank you, sir. I've been chatting with Ken Eford. Ken oversees business development for Noblest Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol HLTH and on the Toronto Stock Exchange's NHC. Noblest is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Find a link to the Noblest Health website on the homepage of ours. EllisMartinReport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at EllisMartinReport.com. That's EllisMartinReport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's EllisMarginReport.com. Now here's Bob Lang. When we invest, we typically look for return either in stock price gain or income from dividends. Gain is what we're here for, the root of making life better by doing better. You can take it easy and plop your money in a CD and have little risk and little reward. Or take a flyer on the bleeding edge of technology, where the risk is high and the potential reward is too. Everyone strives to find that balance, that sweet spot. Most of us diversify holdings and get to that sweet spot of personal tolerance for risk and reward, and that's great. How did we get this knowledge? How did it come to us? Someone taught you is my guess, and some of you probably were self-taught. Not to say everyone who teaches has the acumen to pass on the training needed that will make you successful. I wouldn't ask my ninth grade art teacher to suggest investments or even career moves. That's, That's just not their specialty. But then, that's why you're here, to hear about opportunities that fit into your balance. If we designed a great opportunity from scratch, it would have some prime characteristics, a checklist of features that make it appealing for further investigation and investment, or potential investment. Something like a new huge untapped market, millions of potential customers, or maybe even more. If it was really special, it would be brand new to that huge untapped market as well, or nearly so. So the excitement and the growth has the room to be exponential. 
You'd also need to have something that's very hard to pair with huge untapped markets, and that's where the product is unknown, that and being an established and proven business model. For us to have a cool new opportunity, the business should have a history based in success. Well, let's make it a business that has a famous history rooted in not just its own success, but the success of customers over the short term and the long term, even a subscripted customer base, one that's coming back again and again. So let's review our fantasy wish list. Huge untapped market or nearly so. New experience for that market. Established model or proven system of operation. A history of success, despite being in this huge untapped marketplace and subscripted elements that keep customers coming back again and again. Hmm, can we add some more? I thought I heard someone in the back say cash flow. Okay, it's on the list. Now how about we jack up the wish list one more and ask for no or little debt, if that's not too much to ask for. It should be pretty tough to find a company that can meet those perfect conditions. Would it be even crazier if the untapped market was not just millions of potential customers, but potentially one billion or more? Surely that's too much to ask. What if that new customer experience the untapped market gained was the ability to almost immediately improve many aspects of their own lives in ways they never imagined? Now, for many of you, I'm sure I just tripped on the too-good-to-be-true button, and it's flashing right now. So let's see if the company we have in mind as an opportunity actually meets this wish list. A huge untapped market in some aspects is China, with billions of people who've had a lifetime of the government controlling every aspect of their lives, with not much hope. Full employment, perhaps, but under what conditions? Self-elevation has not been in their model. Not like the USA or the EU. What if your product was hope itself? Man, would that be special. If you have none, or little, or it's wavering, then genuine hope would be very valuable to you. Ask any person with depression. More than that, how about our company has a school, a methodology for turning hope into real-life improvement, a path forward for potentially billions of people who are new to the concept of building wealth, or seeing a new and better way of living in the new Chinese economy. I know many of you have figured it out. But for those still curious, we'll start with the history of success and model of operation for our wish list company. In today's exercise, I'll start with surrogates. I'll pick from the giants of the industry in America. Names like Dale Carnegie, Will Rogers, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dr. Robert Schuller, and Anthony Robbins. They change lives and make money doing it. For some, years after their passing. There are more, but let's take one. Anthony Robbins, American motivational speaker, personal finance instructor, life coach, and self-help author. $30 million in revenue after many years of operating in the capitalist republic of America. He's teaching, life coaching, motivational speaking, spreading optimism, personal development, and self-help. A lot of followers, or subscribers. While many can benefit from Tony's teaching, only a very, very few rise to the level of equal, or perhaps with the opportunity, to surpass Tony's achievements. But it would be rooted in the proven models that people like Tony Robbins have set. Now let's address the last two points on that crazy, too-good-to-be-true wish list we created earlier. Subscripted customers and cash flow with little or no debt. I guess we're close enough to the end of this segment to reveal our opportunity in greater detail. One of, if not the most successful of Anthony Robbins' students, was Stephen Chen. His company, Success Holdings, OTC symbol SHGT, meets most, if not all, of the items on our incredible wish list. One, they dominate the China market in their industry. Two, they provide the new, fresh experience for thousands of paying customers in attendance, and now online, on TV, and on personal devices. Three, they have an established model or operations based on a history of proven success by other great self-improvement giants. 
4. Subscription. SHGT launched a service that will expand its inspirational Internet content from its U.S.-based Launch TV subsidiary on its own platform. It features short films and other content with inspirational themes. Initially launched in China, it's going to likely spread throughout Asia and beyond. Now, Steve Chen, the CEO, said he believed this is a highly significant event for SHGT and represented further validation of their formula for generating high-margin revenue through a series of products and or services that are aimed at enriching the lives of the consumer. In addition to being available to viewers by cable TV, affiliates, and Launch TV, it's available on iPad, iPhone, Android, Roku, and smart TV portal devices worldwide. So there's the subscriptive income in place. So now to complete our wish list of the perfect opportunity. We just need cash flow and little or no debt. In its first nine months of operations as a public company ending March 31st, 2015, SHGT had revenues of over $24 million and earnings of $3.7 million. That's just the first nine months. Now, while many will wait and get into the stock when it's trading in years to come, it's the investor with the appreciation for the potential here that will take a position now. The last estimates I've been able to gather are that debt is less than 10% of cash on hand. SHGT, on the OTCQB, is in my opinion Asia's leading provider of self-improvement products and programs. A new area for Chinese citizens to realize. Once they get on that train, it's going to be a long ride. My time is nearly up, but let's add one more thing to that impossible wish list. Wouldn't it be great if the opportunity company had a stated goal to buy more companies that aligned with our crazy wish list? Now that would be an opportunity, wouldn't it? And that's not unlike what we have in SHGT led by China's foremost motivational speaker and marketer, Steve Chen. SHGT has established an umbrella organization for acquiring rapidly growing companies in related areas. So, after going through this list and showing you these points, I hope you realize now is the time to examine how SGT fits into your balanced investment strategy. Seeing how SHGT lines up with this crazy wish list we created, isn't it time to examine how SHGT fits into your balanced investment strategy? Saying you'll do it later is, well, late. Why am I so excited about SHGT? The root of SHGT and the mission of Steve Chen is to help millions of Chinese in business, in their home life, in their spiritual life, and for the others they interact with, make life better by doing better. And if I remember the beginning of our talk, that's what we're here for, too. Success Holding Group International trades under the symbol SHGT. SHGT was formed based on the philosophy and business strategies of Steve Chen, Asia's number one motivational speaker. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back, Ellis. Now, I'm going to Europe in a couple of weeks, and I just went over to the bank and ordered some euros, and I got that money today. And, you know, it looks like Monopoly money. It looks like play money. <laughs> there was a time, I remember, in 2001, 2002, where people were really pitching, involved in Forex and money markets, were really pitching investing in the euro. And I think at that time, if you did invest, even today you've done well if you've held on to your euros. But what I really want to ask you, while the dollar is really strong and the euro hasn't completely tanked, you know, the difference between investing in paper money and physical Silver and gold at this point, how are we going to win? I mean, if you're a latecomer in investing in, in silver and gold and the physical metal, then you're probably not that happy. But if, you know, you got in about 10 years,
years ago, you're still looking good. Well, see, I've got some money, cash money, some paper, and I want to invest it. Where am I going to put it? Your thoughts, David. Well, give you a long answer as usual. First of all, I think, you know, for the record, I've actually made more money in the paper markets than I have in the physical market, which means that, you know, starting when I did, if you got in on, let's say, you know, Silver Standard that we recommended at 65 cents Canadian, and I forget where it went, somewhere up to 30 or 40. I remember getting out around the $22 level because I did a video update for our members. And this is before Robert Quartermain left Silver Standard, but the chart was very clear. It was breaking through support. I said this is major, major support. When a company, a stock, a commodity breaks a major support level, you absolutely must you know, sell. So we did. That would be like a 30-bagger or something. And we had several of those. What I did and taught, and some people did or didn't do it, was when we got these huge paper gains in the paper game, Many times I converted that to physical metal. So in other words, silver might have gone from, let's say, the $5 level to the $14 level or something, where maybe a 300%. But some of these stocks were up 10-fold, 20-fold, that type of thing. And so we would cash out, and then I personally am recommended at times to you know go into the physical market. So the leverage in the mining shares is extreme at times, both directions. When you're in a bull market, you can expect something like two, three times as much gain as you get in the physical market. But the same holds true on the downside. So I'd be remiss to say it's a one-way street. Certainly it is not. But I think it's important to realize that I've always taken the market on a balanced approach, which means that you should start in the physical realm. If you're a metals investor, you should own metals because that is devoid of any counterparty risk. And then, if you're so inclined or have the ability or opportunity or wish to take on different risk-reward profile, then you can move into my inequities. I mean, if you put me in a court of law, set me down, took the oath to swear the whole truth, where is the most value? I would absolutely have to say the most value is actually in the mining sector. But that wouldn't be my recommendation because you have a counterparty risk. And... No one knows how much lower this market's going to go. I doubt it's going much lower. In fact, I think perhaps silver did double bottom at the low 14 levels, but time will tell. We don't have enough data to know that yet. So, again, talking out of both sides of my mouth, but very sincerely so, that what well, it depends on the individual. If you're very risk-adverse, buy metal only, if you're willing to take the risk, you should seriously consider the mining shares and do it intelligently. Look at the top tier, the mid-tier, and the speculations. Uh, certainly for our members only, we have several special reports. One of them is called Archie's Rule. It gives you a good opportunity to evaluate a company, whether it's worth investing in or not. It's an objective take on what the cash flow of a company is, what their margins are, and whether or not it makes sense to invest or not. And speculations are just that, speculations. So these are situations where you bet a little to win a lot. And this is what the main focus of the newsletter business is. And unfortunately, it's not our main focus, although we spend a lot of time there. It's certainly an area that produces extremes. You can get some extreme winners and some extreme losers. And unless you know the timing of the market or the cycle of the market, when that part of the mining sector is appropriate to invest in or not, you certainly can reap some great rewards or really, really 
do yourself in. I mean, I have plenty of people that I've consulted with over the you know last several years that are pretty disheartened. And not to say that the whole sector, the whole commodity sector is off. It is. But if you look at our top tiers, I think every one except one is still at a profit zone from where we recommended it. That is not true in the mid-tier and the lower-tier stocks because they have been decimated and someone had gone out of business. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Silver Standard, and I, I can't get many broker friends of mine to show up for these luncheons that they have in Los Angeles regarding penny stock mining companies, some of the juniors. Few people want to participate in that. They got burned, but conversely, I think the smartest brokers here in Los Angeles and perhaps you know other parts of the country, they're investing right now in, in some of the top and mid-tier companies, and Silver Standard came up in conversation last week, and I remember a broker just saying, you know what, they're in. They're getting back in, and I guess you could say that the smart people are buying on these dips, right? Absolutely, and most people don't understand about the stock market is you want to buy the absolute best of the best. I mean, buying a junior mining company might produce some spectacular gains. It's like buying a lottery ticket. I mean, most of those companies, it's exactly what it is because you don't know what you're buying. You're looking at something that might take place in the future, and the odds are like 1 in 4,000 against you. Treated for what it really is. Whereas if you're looking at a top tier producer or near producer, uh, the top tier would be a producer, obviously. You're looking at, okay, they mine silver. All right, what are their margins? Because any other company that mines silver, you're looking for the best silver producer out there. You're looking for the company that makes the most profit. Now, Having said that, I don't have time to go into all of the math. It's pretty simple to understand. If you read my first book, Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, I take a whole chapter to explain why if you buy like an out-of-the-money option, which means a mining company that is not making a profit, at today's silver price, for example, is highly leveraged to the upside when that silver price goes higher. Don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth. It's pretty easy to understand. If you're really interested in that, get the book or borrow it from somebody. I think the used ones on Amazon are next to nothing. You probably get the book for a couple bucks. It's well worth the read for just that portion alone that explains why you get more leverage. But back to your point, the smart money is moving back into the sector, but they're doing it as they always do, very slowly, very carefully, so as not to disrupt the market. These people know how to build positions, so they're not going to come in to a company like Silver Standard and put in you know, massive amounts of money in one day and drive the stock high only to see it fall back. They will nibble at it, nibble at it, nibble at it, nibbling for them as substantial shares for a retail investor, but they will do that until they have accumulated what they want. After the accumulation phase comes the markup phase, and then after the markup phase comes the distribution phase. And these are all clearly outlined in the charts, even though some people say technical analysis doesn't work. It's not a perfect science, but certainly if you know what you're looking at, especially when you combine it with volume indicators, you'll get a clear indication of what's really going on in the markets, and it doesn't apply just to super standard. This is across all markets. So, this is something that, you know, I like to do, I like to teach, I show it on my video updates when I do it for my members of the website, something that pay attention to certain things, worth giving that attention because certainly you can do better. You can be a better investor, a more skilled investor, or, you know, know when to be patient, know when to just wait it out and be patient, certainly, you know, to be self-criticizing. I've been patient <laughs> for this four years. I mean, I'm really getting tired of the price action in the metals uh, after four years. I certainly think that fundamentals 
spell that there should be, you know, much more activity in the metals and much higher prices in the metals than we're currently seeing. You're very well known in the space, and people tend to listen and sometimes act on the things that you say. I believe you just said, use the word may, which is a cautionary word, may and probably and, and potentially. And it's always great to use those words, but instead of using that language, why wouldn't you say should? You should invest in that. Wouldn't you think that your words, don't you think that the, the, the people like yourself can actually help move a market with pure logic? Because all the logic that you've stated is pretty sound. And why wouldn't you invest in the physical metal when paper is fragile and eventually it will crumble? Well, great question. I mean, basically, it gets to pretty much our philosophy. And that would be, should means, would beg the question why, and why it gets into intent. And intent is, well, as you saw in his own book, well, I think it's pretty obvious I am. I mean, we are probably one of the top services out there as far as analyzing mining companies and resource companies. It's not just silver companies or gold companies. We've done oil companies and, you know, across the board, the commodities. So the intent is what is the other person's intent. Now, is why I would say could or would rather than it should. But as far as, you know, if I had the ability to present it in a fashion where they had to take a test at the end of the lecture, you know, I got to grade it and I saw that they understood the concepts, that I certainly say should, because at that point they would know for themselves, not me telling them, but they would have learned the concepts for themselves. They would know to their innermost self that this is a paradigm that cannot last much longer, and therefore it's beholden to them to take the appropriate action, which would mean they'd have to escape the matrix which goes further down the rabbit hole, which means they have to own physical metal. And that's something But you know, in the context of an audio interview, it's pretty hard to do that. But conceptually, you bet they should. But to say what is the intent, the intent has to come from them, not from me. I just am a big believer in that, Ellis. Well, as long as you're not saying you should invest in a particular ABC company and list the name, should is a word that you can use. I don't mind David Morgan using that word. I wouldn't want me to do it. I, I'm no expert. I'm just a journalist. And let me move into another point related to this. I watched your video that you just released a couple of days ago through InvestorPitch.com, and the headline is, The 10 Largest Global Markets Are All Crashing. That's a big headline right there, and we may talk about that. But more importantly, for the purpose of this conversation is, you you mentioned platinum and palladium, and you mentioned why platinum's price corrected. <laughs> Let's use that word. And then you mentioned why palladium has moved up. You think the reasons for the decline in platinum and the uptick in uh, palladium are sustainable? And if they are sustainable with regard to palladium, uh, would you be looking for uh, palladium investments even in the junior space? Well, yes. I'll, I'm going to turn back the clock a little bit because we were actually big proponents of palladium back, and I'm going to have to go from memory so my website members can criticize me on the blog, but I think it was around this level, I think it was around $700 level, maybe below, might have been 600 and we got very enthusiastic about Palladium and watched it go from that level all the way up to 900 and I did a video again for our website members about this is a pretty good place to be. There aren't many opportunities to invest in palladium in the uh, stock exchanges, although Stillwater Mining is probably worth a look. It was structured in pretty tight share structure going back a decade ago, but since the Russians moved in, and I'm not saying anything negative about the Russians, they saw an opportunity 
The company is not as tightly structured as it once was, but there aren't many Palladium. I mean, North America Palladium, I think they're out of business. I think they may be moving into the, you know, my little jokey story about the miners go to pot, but they may be going that route. I'm not sure. I'm just throwing it out more or less as a metaphor. But if you want to get in the Palladium market, you don't have a lot of opportunity. There's some ETFs, and there's the physical metal and there's still water mining, and that's about it. As far as platinum is concerned, you have some of the South Africans, and they're really not making any money at these levels. Anglo-American is having very big problems, just like Glencore. So there aren't a lot of opportunities. If I were to ask, you know, what should you do if you wanted to do palladium, I would say it'd be smartest to get the actual metal itself. As far as will it be sustainable or not, I'd say not until we get a good lift off in the gold market. Gold's pretty much the leader across the board, although the white metals sometimes give indications as, as give the subtle clues to start leading before gold really gets moving strongly. But between the two metals, the reason you have platinum going down and palladium going up is that platinum is used in catalytic converters on diesel engines, and palladium is used in catalytic converters on gasoline engines. And the idea now with this uh, unfolding of what's going on with Volkswagen on their environmental problems with the diesel engines is thinking out in the future that there'll be less demand for diesel, more demand for gasoline, and that means there'll be more demand for palladium and less demand for platinum, and that's why you see the discrepancy. Unless, of course, you're Cummins diesel, and I believe their stock was up the other day. The need for those entrances isn't going to go away anytime soon, is it? No, I mean, just kind of a maybe a moot point, but I'll voice it. I mean, I drive a Volkswagen diesel. <laughs> I own a Volkswagen diesel. In fact, and I'm not, you know, people think of me whatever they want. I'm uh, trying to maintain myself. I mean, I try that just to be me. But, uh, you know, I bought that car gladly, not particularly because it had such low emissions. I thought that was a great benefit. I believe the company when I bought it, but I bought it for longevity and great gas mileage and something that I thought was engineered rather well. I mean, it's a very quiet car, and I've never seen black smoke come out their back, but nonetheless, it's very disheartening that, you know, when you see this. But as far as going down that rabbit hole a little bit further, a diesel engine, being an engineer and having to go through, you know, not only the mechanical side, but on the aeronautical. So that's a very efficient engine, and they're very useful in certain applications. And unfortunately, Volkswagen has gotten much more than a black eye. This has certainly been a setback for the industry as, at large. But as far as just taking that subset of a diesel engine out by itself, certainly they're very, very useful. And the problems that have unfolded certainly can be solved, but it will not be something that's overnight, that's for certain. But the headline, 10 largest global markets are all crashing. You have no problem using the word crash. <laughs> no, I do, absolutely. It's so funny because investment pitch has asked me to do these money and metals updates every week, and I get to them when I can almost every week. I'm able to do one, and they put the headlines on there. Oh. I gave the facts. I mean, basically crashing, you know, I said it in the last book, Report, which is kind of interesting because if you're a paid member, you get a little bit different take on David Morgan than you'll get from these radio interviews. Not that I'm not trying to be consistent all the time, it's just that I don't have a lot of control of what headlines are posted because I submit my work and then the people that have the work can, uh, you know, they can put headlines on there that I don't necessarily think are appropriate. 
what I gave were the facts of the 10 of the biggest stock markets in the world. But what I said in the Morgan Report the month earlier is that to really get a quote-unquote crash, you have to see 20% down in a market. Now, some of those markets have crashed. I mean, just do the math, and I say it in that update. But for the U.S. markets, as an example, they have not crashed yet. Although I've had people on the radio say, well, you know, use the word crash, and I did. And I said by the end of October, but we'll see. I could be wrong on that. So far, I am wrong, because we see, what, 10% or something. So, yes, some have crashed, some have not. Certainly, you know, Chinese market. I mean, I'd rather focus more on my expertise to come back to Glencore. I mean, that company which trades, I think it's 80 or 90 commodities, is off like 77% for the year. That's a crash. And that's where the stalwarts in the whole commodities complex. And that's very worrisome for anybody that's involved because of the derivatives exposure that that company has. And they have derivatives exposure to big, major mining houses. So this is something that could be somewhat similar to the uh, Lehman Brothers AIG situation, where AIG is sort of the big boy on the block, so to speak, that had to get bailed out so the derivatives didn't fail. And I'm not saying that's the exact analogy, but it's pretty close because this is a huge concern, you know, concern in both ways. It's a big, huge conglomerate, and it's very concerning how many ties go out, how many tentacles go out into the commodity complex and what the repercussions will be, and we don't know that yet. And yet we made it through another September, this particular September, without a black swan event that so many people were possibly pointing to. Do you see anything? <laughs> I hesitate to even ask this, but how are you feeling about October? Well, you know, I think it's good that you brought the September thing. I was trying to be objective about it and trying to keep not too hypey about it. I mean, I've seen this stuff for so long. I mean, I've... I could name so many, but you just go back to the Y2K incident. So many people thought there would be, you know, some kind of major repercussion with the computers not recognized in the year 2000. And I mean, that came and went. And one silver comment on that was that was a huge premium on junk silver bags at the time because a lot of people thought there would be a problem and they owned, you know, junk bags, which is known pretty much as being probably the best silver you could own on a barter situation. And, of course, once the Y2K rollover took place and nothing happened, the premiums came out of that market quite substantially. As far as October, I still think the market's overvalued from several metrics. I think that the pros have been getting out of this market for a long time, and I think that we could see another 10% down in the market, which if you add to the 10% we've already seen, we'd put it around 20%, which would be, you know, more than a correction, it would be moving toward the bear market territory. I don't rule it out. I don't know. I think it could happen. I certainly did open my mouth back in, I think, March on the Great Hunter interview and said I thought that by the end of October, it would be evident that there would be a stock market correction, I might use crash, significant enough to change the paradigm going from the equity market back into the commodity sector. But, you know, we have a month less. Time is getting short. I'll probably get some more negative commentary on my interviews, and that's okay. I just do the best I can. Greg asked me why, and I don't even know if we talked to Shemit on that first interview. I think we did in the second. But my main case was uh, cycle theory and stock markets. Usually the September-October time frame is the most negative 
for the equity markets. And that is what I based it on in the seven years. It usually a pretty clear seven-year cycle in the stock market. So it was based on that more than this other stuff that people, other people have come up with. And I'm not just kind of anybody's ideas or opinions. I'm just saying that, you know, that's mine. Stick it to it. We'll see what happens. And uh, nobody really benefits from a, a bad bear market. All I'm trying to state for the record is that the metrics of the valuations of the overall market is very overvalued relative to the physical economy. There's a real mismatch between what the financial markets show you on TV and what the physical economy is actually doing. David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.